is a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. I am Alan Watt, and the 22nd of January 2009. I always advise newcomers to look into cuttingthroughmatrix.com. On the website, you'll find hundreds of talks I've given over the years. I've tried to give you a view of history, often history that's been stuck away somewhere, hidden from the general public, and comes out in occasional book or periodical in old dry books. Generally, you have to go through lots and lots of books, very dry books, to find a little, a little sentence or a paragraph that just stuns you. And if you can keep awake going through them, uh, then it really hits you. Otherwise, you, 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 you'll sleep right through it. I think that's why they write them that way, to be honest with you. And I try to give you the shortcuts to seeing a, a picture, a big picture, of really a controlled society a society that, by proof and evidence from books written by big players of their time, they can show you how mind control of whole populations is nothing new, and that there certainly is a group that's existed, at least in one side, one hemisphere of the planet, uh, that ran the last hundred years and is presently running uh, the future we're going into right now. In fact, they're up there negotiating between countries, going around governments, and even advising governments as to what to do. They've been at this forever, and I've been trying to go through some of the history of this particular group uh, that now blatantly comes out on television as the CFR, openly. Now, most of the public, when they see that, uh, talking to some politician, will think it's some governmental department the Council on Foreign Relations, but it's not. It's a private organization. And it's the American branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a private organization. I've been going through Carl Quigley's books, Professor Carl Quigley, who was the historian for this group for a while, and he went through all of the records. Uh, he was a big player himself in his field. Uh, he advised the State Department, advised military depart- departments, he was well up on various topics, and he obviously had to be a, been a member himself even to get access to the records of this group that literally kept the, the magnitude of their implications in history out of the picture of general books that we, we get to see. He even wrote about that, how he, he was astonished at the power they wielded for a 100 years and right up to the present at least in his day anyway, that was the 1960s, and it's still going yet, because they were in control of all periodicals. They had a lot of their men in politics at high positions. They ran the media completely, and they were backed by the big banker families. Big banking families were all on board, and that's something I'd like to get into eventually is, and go back into time after, maybe after tonight's talk. But... When you look at what's happening today, 
going into a global society, a global society that was the dream of the founders of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. That was their dream. And it was a dream so fervent in their minds, they, they didn't stop short of manipulating and creating wars like the Boer War to get their way. And whole nations went to war because of machinations behind the scenes by many of their members. That's a hard thing for most people to believe today, but it's documented not in conspiracy books, by, but by professors who are involved in the organization. Back with more after this break. Through the matrix. I should also mention before I go on, you can get to Alan Watt Sentinel.eu for transcripts of the talks are given. And you can print them up. They're written in the various languages of Europe. You can also look into cuttingthroughmatrix.com website, see what's for sale there. You can also donate to me as well. That keeps me going. I won't be around forever. I can assure you of that. And getting back to what I was talking about was some of the histories that have led us up to where we are today. If you don't know these histories, you won't know why things are happening today. And even with the rioting that was predicted a long time ago and is now breaking out all over the place, you're pretty well guaranteed that there'll be leaders who will step in and guide the new youth into the correct, the correct corral, once again, of sustainability, a new way of living, a new economic system, and you'll serve the world state, all under this beautiful utopian guise. We will all be technically equal. But remember what, what equality is. And George Orwell said in 84 that some are more equal than others in such utopias. There's always been a, a dominant minority, as Huxley said. And he said, in the same, in the same speech at Berkeley, he says, I, I presume there always will be. It's only reason why it shouldn't be. Even in a scientifically run dictatorship. And we're really under that today. Because that which runs us today is the science of the mind, science of the masses, which wasn't drummed up or dreamed up by Bernays. It was already understood long before him. And there's no doubt about it, those who control the money control the world. And Professor Carl Quigley talked about this because, after all, the big bankers were funding the particular groups from Cecil Rhodes, Lord Milner, into the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Round Tables. They were funding what was to be taught in universities. They were dishing out the grants as to where science should go. And you can understand science is now dictating our lives to us as how we should live and how the future is to be. It's all connected because it's not evolving out of the imaginations of the general public as we just drift along through time. It's planned that way. And if you don't understand the present so-called depression, which we're into, this financial depression, which went against all the rules of economics because in the hidden persuaders, Vance Packard said, that when the top economists had said that any economist saying the bad news to lose confidence in the people 
of investors was committing suicide. It was tantamount to heresy, he said. Why would a president come out and tell you that this crash that's coming could be worse than the 1930s? That was guaranteed to stop everything. And then they already had their next man with his regime lined up to walk in and implement the next phase of it, the whole greening agenda, the new economic system, that's what I've been talking about here, a new way of living, a new way of living. And you always wonder who's behind it, and everybody else will blame everyone else, and they'll never know. In Tragedy and Hope, by Carol Quigley, he talks about the last depression, and you can, you can pretty well put the, the present one as well. It says, in the various actions which increase or decrease the supply of money, governments, bankers, and industrialists have not always seen eye to eye. On the whole, the period up to 1931, bankers, especially the money power controlled by the international investment bankers, were able to dominate both business and government. Well, that's not news to us. But they pretend they have nothing to do with government. They always will. They could dominate business, especially in activities and in areas where industry could not finance its own needs for capital because investment bankers had the ability to supply or refuse to supply such capital. Thus, Rothschild interests came to dominate many of the railroads of Europe. Now, now Rothschild, remember, was he took over the will and the legacy of running the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, which was set up to bring in a world government, ultimately. So from the very beginning of this organization, and I don't think it was the beginning with Cecil Rhodes, the bankers were on board with this agenda. This is well, Morgan, and I've already, you already mentioned Morgan, the Morgan family were heavily involved, the CFR funding it in all different directions. Morgan dominated at least 26,000 miles of American railroads. Such bankers went further than this in return for flotations of securities of industry. They took seats on the boards of directors of industrial firms, as they had already done on commercial banks, savings banks, insurance firms, and finance companies. From these lesser institutions, they funneled capital to enterprises which yielded control and away from those who resisted. These firms were controlled through interlocking directorships, holding companies and lesser banks. They engineered amalgamations and generally reduced competition. In other words, there were, there were consortiums. Until by the early 20th century, many activities were so monopolized, they kicked out all competition, stifled it or smothered it, that they could raise their non-competitive prices above cost to obtain sufficient profits to become self-financing and were thus able to eliminate the control of bankers. But before that stage was reached, a relatively small number of bankers were in positions of immense influence in European and American economic life. Now here's where a famous statement was made that's been copied many times by many authors going into the conspiracy side of it. And this is by Professor Carl Quigley. As early as 1909, Walter Rathnow, who was in a position to know since he had inherited from his father control of the German General Electric Company and had held scores of directorships himself, said, this is what he said, 300 men, all of whom know each other, direct the economic destiny of Europe. 
and choose their successors from among themselves. See, that was already set up a long time ago. The power of investment bankers over governments rests on a number of factors, of which the most significant, perhaps, is the need of governments to issue short-term treasury bills as well as long-term government bonds. Just as businessmen go to commercial banks for current capital advances to smooth over the discrepancies between their irregular and intermittent incomes and their periodic and persistent outgoes, such as monthly rents, mortgages, and weekly wages, so a government has to go to merchant bankers or institutions controlled by them, institutions controlled by them, to tide over the shallow places caused by irregular tax receipts. As experts in government bonds, the international bankers not only handled the necessary advances, but provided advice to government officials, and on many occasions placed their own members in official posts for varied periods to deal with special problems. This is so widely accepted even today that in 1961, a Republican investment banker became Secretary of the Treasury in a Democratic administration in Washington without significant comment from any direction. Naturally, the influence of bankers over governments during the age of financial capitalism, which is up to 1931, was not something about which anyone talked about freely, but has been admitted frequently enough by those on the inside, especially in England, even as far back as Gladstone, Chancellor of the Exchequer, who said, the hinge of the whole situation was this, the government itself was not to be a substantive power in matters of finance, but was to leave the money power supreme and unquestioned. In other words, don't touch it. On September 26, 1921, the Financial Times wrote, half a dozen men at the top of the big five banks could upset the whole fabric of government finance by refraining from renewing treasury bills. In 2024, Sir Sir Robert Drummond Fraser, Vice President of the Institute of Bankers, stated the Governor of the Bank of England must be the autocrat who dictates the terms upon which alone the government can obtain borrowed money. In addition to their power over government, based on government financing and personal influence, bankers could steer governments in ways they wish them to go by other pressures. Since most government officials felt ignorant of finance, they sought advice from bankers, whom they considered to be experts in the field. The history of the last century shows, as we shall see later, that advice given to governments by bankers, like the advice they gave to industrialists, was consistently good for bankers, but was often disastrous for governments, businessmen, and the people generally. Such advice could be enforced, if necessary, by manipulation of exchanges, gold flows, discount rates, and even levels of business activity. Thus, Morgan dominated Cleveland's second administration by gold withdrawals, and in 36-38, French foreign exchange manipulators paralyzed the popular front governments. As we shall see, the powers of these international bankers reached their peak in the last decade of their supremacy, up to 1931, when when Montague Norman and J.P. Morgan dominated not only the financial world but international relations and other matters as well. On November 11, 1927, the Wall Street Journal called Mr. Norman the the currency dictator of Europe. This was admitted by Mr. Norman himself before the court of the bank on March 21, 1930 and before the Macmillan Committee of of the House of Commons five days later. So they admitted 
they basically ruled the world. On one occasion, just before international financial capitalism ran at full speed on the rocks, which sank it, Mr. Norman is reported to have said, I, I hold the hegemony of the world. At the time, some Englishmen spoke of the second Norman conquest of England in reference to the fact that Norman's brother was head of the British Broadcasting Corporation. It might be added that Governor Norman rarely acted in major world problems without consulting with J.P. Morgan's representatives, and as a cons- consequence, he was one of the most widely traveled men of his day. Now, these guys also ran the greatest big secret society, the greatest secret society that many fronts, and that's what's been going over recently. Back with more after this break. Wash us 
down below were just too irrational to conduct themselves in an an orderly fashion without supervision. On page 197, Professor Carroll Quigley says this, talking about the English branch of the CFR, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. This brief sketch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs does not by any means indicate the very considerable influence which the organization exerts in English-speaking countries in the sphere to which it is devoted. The extent of that influence must be obvious. The purpose of this chapter has been something else. To show that the Milner Group controls the institute that was back then. Once that is established, the picture changes. The influence of Chatham House, remember that became the OSS headquarters because they already were the secret society that was into everything across the globe. The influence of Chatham House appears in its true perspective, not as the influence of an autonomous body, but as merely one of one of the many instruments in the arsenal of another power. This is a professor talking. He chooses his words carefully. The influence of Chatham House appears in its true perspective, not as the influence of an autonomous body or a bunch of guys doing as they wish, but as merely one of the many instruments in the arsenal of another power. When the influence which the Institute wields is combined with that controlled by the Milner Group, remember the Round Tables, Cecil Rhodes Society for World Government, and the Lord uh, Milner Group all combines into the RIIA. And it says, when you, when you see what they're into other fields, in education, in administration, in newspapers and periodicals, a really terrifying picture begins to emerge. This picture is called terrifying. And remember, he's going to be pro, the, pro them. He thought they were all idealists. Not because the power of the Milner Group was used for evil ends. It was not, he says. On the contrary, it was generally used with the best intentions in the world even if those intentions were so idealistic as to be almost academic. If you'll notice the greening projects, the political correctness, and all the rest of the stuff we're getting today, it's all coming from the same source, by the way. That's from academia. That's how people above all the, the normal stations of life would view us all down below. It's academic. The Soviet system was run by this system, too, where authors and Poets and everyone were called up in front of tribunals to make sure that all their wording was politically correct. So the arsenal of another power, and he talks about the fact that they controlled education, there were an administration in all, all levels, all positions, and all bureaucracies, and newspapers and periodicals, they owned the newspapers and the magazines, they gave us our thoughts and ideas. A really terrifying picture begins to emerge. The picture is called terrifying not because the power of the Milner Group was used for evil deeds. It was not. On the contrary, it was used with the best intentions in the world. And they were idealistic, almost academic. The picture is terrifying because such power, whatever the goals at which it may be directed, is too much to be entrusted safely to any group. And this is a very important bit I'll do right after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
somewhat cutting through the matrix, going over some of the dry, boring stuff to some. But if you won't know what's happening now with you, you definitely won't know what's happening now if you don't look at the past and the powers that controlled it in the past and still control it today. They're still in charge of what books you'll read in various areas, especially in schools. They give us our history. Their main members write the history books, always did. That's what Carla Quigley was talking about here. He's trying to defend them. He says the picture is called terrifying. It says, because such power, whatever is gold, at which it may be directed, is too much being trusted safely to any group. Now, they were non-democratic. In fact, they were very secretive. The public didn't even know they existed all through this period. That it was too much to be safely entrusted to the Milner Group will appear quite clearly in Chapter 12. No country that values its safety should allow that the Milner Group accomplish what they accomplished in Britain. That is, that a small number of men should be able to wield such power in administration and politics should be given almost complete control over the publication of the documents relating to their actions. Their own members wrote their histories. Should be able to exercise such influence over the avenues of information. They controlled all information that create public opinion. How can you come to a rational conclusion and make a decision on something if you can't get all the facts? And, of course, the omission of facts will make you pro-war, anti-war, depending on where they're trying to point you, which they did, by the way, and that's in the book as well. And should be able to monopolize so completely the writing and teaching of the history of their own period. To monopolize so completely, that means pretty well all of it, the writing and the teaching of the history of their own period. Now remember I said that in Chatham House, how come that became the headquarters of the OSS? The OSS branched off into MI6 and the CIA. It's the same group. In fact, if you read these books, you'll find the same names were operatives within the CIA, MI6, and the Council on Foreign Relations and Royal Institute for International Affairs. All the same players were also agents along with their, 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 their funders, the bankers. It's astonishing. You know, even Winston Churchill hadn't a clue that they existed and what kind of power that they had. And he brought it up in Parliament. Because the group, you see, had a manifesto from the 1800s where they wanted to rebuild the entire planet and create these big massive trading blocks but under a world government and a new system of living, a new way of living. You also get the hints of sustainability in there as well. Remember the bankers were on board in the 1800s. And their idea was, first of all, to create, they already had the British Empire, and this empire was to blossom into a world empire that if we camouflaged, they would give certain countries freedom first, but only when they had set up the same structure of supposed phony democracy in those countries would they withdraw. 
because they'd have recruitment members within those countries belonging to the same association to direct it in the same path as they were going back in Britain. And that's what we're doing in Iraq right now, studying about the puppet, the puppet government, training a generation, they'll go into various fraternities, certain ones will get picked and chosen, and they'll really run the country, not the elected, elected officials. This is a trick they used done through the last hundred years. And Churchill didn't know why these people had advocated and were promoting uh, that India be given its freedom, which was a fair and dandy if they were actually given their freedom, but they weren't, not the way they thought. And Churchill said in Parliament, Churchill says this, I've watched this story from its very unfolding, and what has struck me more than anything else about it, and this is on page 222, the Anglo-American establishment, has been the amazingly small number of people who have managed to carry matters to their present lamentable pitch. You could almost count them on the fingertips of one hand. I've also been struck by the prodigious power which this group of individuals has been able to exert and relay, to use a mechanical term, through the vast machinery of party, that's political parties, of parliament, because they're, they are men in all the top positions in parliament, and of patronage, both here and in the East, it is tragical that they should have been able to mislead the loyalties and use the assets of the empire to its own undoing. They were using the system and the financing of the British Empire to undo, from Churchill's view, what the empire was. He didn't know the rest of the story. So, see, setting up these, these little cloned units of a new type of society, but inserting a secret society within those left behind to run the countries. And they used to, see, the taxpayers' money to do it. They're still using the taxpayers' money to do it. It says, I compliment them on their skill, and I compliment them also on their, their disciples. And that's what they're called. They are called disciples. They're, they're incredibly idealistic, the ones that recruit right out of Oxford and Cambridge and so on. And the States, too, is Princeton, etc. The course is exceedingly well drilled. This statement was answered by Lord Eustace Percy, quoted Lord Hugh Cecil on profitable mendacity. This led to an argument in which both sides appealed to the speaker. Then order was stored, restored and so on. And so it is quite clear that Churchill believed his charge was referring to what we have called the Milner Group, although he would not have known it under that name. It was so secretive. And the groups behind the CFR are still so secretive because they have circles. They call them circles, the fraternities. There's the lower circles, then there's the higher circles, then there's the inner chambers. So each circle works towards a world system. At the bottom, they're all idealistic about it. The ones in between the middle that play on the higher powers, they work on all media, run all media. They decide what textbooks you'll read, what will be in the textbooks. In fact, their guys write the textbooks, and that shapes your thought. But the ones at the top are still very secretive. And they use technocrats, that's also in the book, like the Kissingers and so on, that run across the planet, who are always behind the scenes with more power than presidents because they don't have to answer to the general public on anything. And they know, and he says it in the book here, that the, te the technocrat knows he, he wields the true power. He can get things done. Exactly the same as Margaret Thatcher talked about when she joined it. The parallel government, as she called it. So here you have an organization 
that uses sciences to rule the people, they, they use the Bernays-type techniques to create public opinion. They rule the media. In the book, he goes so far as to show you how they terrified the British people on purpose to get them pro-war with Germany and how they, their members, the RIIA's members, who ruled the newspapers, they had a meeting, which is how can we scare the Jesus out of the British public and get them on board. So they got the king, they asked the king to give a talk openly about the necessity for digging trenches all around London. Trenches, as they knew, was laughable. It would be useless in the air raid. But it would get them all thinking it was coming, it was coming. And then all the same, the media boys, their barons, wrote the same story, all eyes. And Quigley says that because he's reading from their records as to how they did it. And they told the British public they were going to be gassed at any time, that Hitler had massive amounts of gas. And they were sprayed from the skies. And they're all going to die. And just to make sure, just to augment it so we could seem more realistic, they got, they got the government to, to issue millions of gas masks. And they had path news coming on. And the cinema was telling them, carry it with you at all times. You're going to get gassed. And the Germans had no intention of doing that. And the intelligence of Britain knew that the Germans didn't have the gases to do it. That's the lens that this organization, the same organization that's out in the open today, advising governments on policies, the same organization that admits that they were the ones who drafted up the lines for Ireland, the border. They drafted up the ones for Afghanistan, not for Afghanistan, Iraq and Iran, and Pakistan and India. They bypassed all governments. They were the guys behind it, and they take credit in their own writings for doing this. And none of them are elected or answerable to any public anywhere for their actions. These are the guys who basically became the CIA and MI6. These are the guys in the previous talks I've given about the cultural Cold Wars that had all these front groups working and the, the right-wing people are blaming far-left communists for what was happening. Meanwhile, it was they themselves that were doing all of this to change the, the whole course of society. These are the guys that put degenerate art out, the nihilistic stuff, in a, in a sort of psychological drama that creates a form of apathy. Remember what, what Bertrand Russell says, you must create apathy to control the people. Meanwhile, every other group is fighting every other group, all their opposite groups, and this bunch are behind the scenes doing all of this. And they're also writing your textbooks, they're writing your news stories for you, they're writing the magazines for you. They're creating their whole reality. They came out openly on Canadian television and admitted they were the ones that drafted up these negotiations, these amalgamations, basically these steps into amalgamation for Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Who elected these people to do this? And what makes governments listen to them? Are the governments told to listen to them by a, a higher power somewhere? So you have to understand the past, understand the present, because... They're more powerful than ever. 
because now through the Rhodes Scholarship they have their men in every government across the planet and they concentrate upon the bureaucracies because through the bureaucracies which are there regardless of parties moving in and out the bureaucracies have their mandates and they bypass the politicians often have done since the League of Nations and can, <clears throat> can basically converse with their opposite parties in some other country, the opposite bureaucracies. H.G. Wells talked about that a long time ago. <clears throat> Look at the funders who are in on this. I mean, people like the Astors. Now you know who set up the Fabian Society and many more of the same ilk. It was the same organization using all these fronts. They run right-wing fronts, left-wing fronts. They direct and fund all the social engineering studies in all universities for the next generation of experts to rule over us and tell us what to do and what to wear and how to behave or not behave or whatever else it may be. It makes me think of Bernays again. Now Bernays did not dream up the art of mass manipulation and the effects of propaganda. He wrote a book called Propaganda. In the first lines of the book it says, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. He wrote that in 1928. And he's on board with this team. And we think we're coming to our own conclusions. As I say, it's very similar to the riots going on right now that the media is making sure you know about. And I'm sure all the talk shows are going on about, well, is there a new revolution coming? And where will it go? Will the, will the youth throw off all the shackles, etc.? Look what the youth have been taught before this. The greening system. Did the youth rebel when they're walking through all the checkpoints in school? No. So they'll accept that kind of society. If, it, if the claims may be peace for all, they'll go for that. But they also push for the new economic system, which is exactly what the boys who control the present economic system want. Because it's the same boys that run the CFR. I always say with revolutions, watch who, can, who leads you. Watch who leads you. Watch where they'll take you, because it's precisely where they want you to go. They want to bring in a new system, and they will use words like justice for all, inequality, all the usual idealistic-sounding terms, but they won't <clears throat> elaborate in the true meanings of them. They won't break them down for you. Who's more equal than others? Who will be ruling you? There's going to be a structure set up of government of some kind or will the answer be well no one can be trusted to rule their own life in peace therefore you all have to be watched so it's only fair we all allow ourselves to be watched 24 hours a day where do they get into this ideal world how long, how far back does it go? It goes back into the 1800s. 
actually long before long before that in the Anglo-American establishment it says from this point onwards early 1938 the Milner Group that's part of the Royal Institute of International Affairs increasingly emphasized the necessity for building up this oceanic block it was their idea to build up the blocks in fact they were all for Hitler initially this great experiment they called it because because Hitler's ideals were the same as theirs, they said. Because he wanted a united Europe. From this point onward, early 1930, the Milner Group increasingly emphasized the necessity for building up the Oceanic Bloc. In England, this basic propaganda work, again, propaganda was done through the Round Table and Lionel Curtis, while in the United States it was done through the Rhodes Scholarship Organization. That's the foundation, the one that Bill Clinton was sent off to, and many, many more especially through Clarence Strait and Frank Adolette. In England, Curtis wrote a series of books. Now, here's what they did to manipulate the minds. Maybe they said a book is a fantastic tool. Now it's TV and so on. A movie can do it. Curtis wrote a series of books and articles advocating a new federal organization built around the English-speaking countries initially, but it was to go on to global. The chief work of this nature was, was the Civitas Dea, which appeared in three volumes in 34 to 37. A one-volume edition was issued in 38 with the title The Commonwealth of God, he called it. Commonwealth of God. And that's an expansion of the Commonwealth of Nations. Back with more after this break. the matrix trying to get to the bottom of things and it's a murky dark bottom indeed very very deep what Professor Quigley is giving us here is how they write history with a spin a spin to grab the youth to make them idealistic and bring them to the only conclusion that's left at the end of a book he's how it has done it says here Curtis was writing one they wrote many many books all the major books actually were written by their members it says, by a, a superficial and frequently erroneous rewriting, erroneous rewriting of world history, right, slanted, the author sought to review the evolution of the Commonwealth idea and to show that all of history leads to its fulfillment and achievement in federation. Ultimately, this federation will be worldwide. It's a world federation. Federation. They own the World Federal Society by the best one of their organizations. Uh, ultimately it will be worldwide but on the way on the way to being worldwide it must pass through stages of which the chief is federation of the English speaking peoples first of all writing early in 37 he advocated the League of Nations be destroyed now they set up the League of Nations these boys but now it had fulfilled its purpose and that's getting on to the next stage the builders always do it. They build a, a, a building, and when it's fulfilled its purpose, they demolish it and bring another one up. It says, The League of Nations be destroyed by the mass resignation of the British democracies. These should then, be, be, then take the initiative in forming a new league also at Geneva, which would have no power to enforce anything, but would merely form a kind of international conference 
that's the United Nations. Since it would be foolish to expect any federation to evolve from any such organization as this, a parallel but quite separate effort should be made to create an international commonwealth based on the example of the United States in 1788. Now, remember what Benjamin Franklin said in his own memoirs, if you read them, that he hoped, and many of the founders hoped, that, that this federation of the United States would be the nucleus, the beginning of a world federation. Since this international commonwealth would differ from the League of Nations in that its members would yield up part of their sovereignty and the central organization would function directly on individuals and not merely on states. This international commonwealth would be formed first only of those states that have evolved furthest in the direction of obtaining a commonwealth form of government for themselves. They wanted a cloned democratic system put up there, even though they would really run them behind the scenes, as they were already doing. It will be recalled that this restriction on membership was what Curtis had originally advocated for the League of Nations in the round table of December 1918. That's when they put forward the setting up of the League of Nations. According to Curtis, the movement towards the Commonwealth of God can begin by the union of any two national commonwealths, no matter how small. He suggested New Zealand and Australia, or these two in Great Britain, then the international commonwealth could be expanded to include India, Egypt, that's happened, you see, uh, 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 India, uh, Holland, Belgium, Scandinavia, France, Canada, the United States, and Ireland. What are you seeing now that they've set up the amalgamated Europe? They want America, the American amalgamation to now amalgamate with Europe exactly along these lines. This was written a long time ago by those who pulled it off. I'll be back with more. So tomorrow. So from Hamish myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. May your God or your gods go with you.